to the movies. Welcome to the stars. Welcome to this grand delusion. All of it's yours. Right through these doors. Every plot's a dilly. Would you look at us? We're here! Hello! Welcome to M3, the movie musical man. Oh, this is a special monthly Patreon series for which I watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Oh, this has been this has been so long in the planning, and we are here. We are only here because of you. That's right. I thank our patrons all the time. I am eternally grateful for their generous donations, and you are the reason why this show exists. We got to our $100 in total monthly donations. We got to that goal, and we had to wait a little longer. You know, we had to wait for the Radio Boy season to wrap up, but now we are here for this first episode, the theme for which is Stone Cold Classics. This episode will officially be known as the Stone Cold Classic Trilogy. We are talking about The Wizard of Oz from 1939, Singing in the Rain from 1952, and then we are going to round out our discussion with The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964, and if you thought, oh, he's not pronouncing that right. I... I still don't really know how to do it well. My French accent, I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure you could agree my French accent is terrible, and I do apologize to any of our listeners from the nation of France. Okay, so here's the thing. I just want us to experience this, this time together. I want this time together to be an experience, is what I should say. And so we are just going to go to a movie theater in our minds for the purposes of this show. The movie theater in my mind. It is a, it is a beautiful, wonderful, clean movie theater where there is no, there's no threat. Okay, so we can't go to movie theaters in, in the real world world IRL. So we're going to go to this movie theater in our minds together. You're here right with me. This is one of those, this is almost like an ASMR experience where I am guiding through you through a lived experience, I should say. So here we are outside of the theater. I'm not really quite sure what the exterior of this building looks like just yet, but I know that to get into the theater, we have to go through a revolving door. Now be careful. It sticks just a little bit sometimes. So just be careful. You know, don't push on it too hard. So let's go through that together. <laughs> and we're on the other side of that revolving door. And now on the other side of that revolving door is an elevator. There is a golden elevator that we are going to take and we are going to hit that button now. The elevator button. We're outside of the elevator. We haven't stepped inside yet. I, I just pushed the button. So now we're just waiting. For <laughs> no longer need to wait. It's right here. Okay, so this elevator only has one stop. Okay, the main floor of our movie theater in our minds. So I'm going to hit that button now. And oh, okay, some lovely elevator music. That's fun. So it does take a second to get up to the main floor, I should say. Uh, you are looking fantastic. Looks aren't everything, of course. It's not the sum total of our value as, as a people, as a person, is it? Uh, did you get a haircut recently? 
You did that yourself? Are you serious? That looks fantastic. That, I'm, I'm very jealous. I wish I could do that. I feel like the only error that I could give myself is the gay man buzz cut. So you look fantastic. I hope that, <laughs> I hope that we're going to have a lot of fun today. And here we are. Okay, okay. So we're stepping out of the elevator and we find ourselves in this beautiful spacious, it's dark and yet there's a lot of like gold tinted sort of backlit lighting. It's very moody. It's very, if you've ever been to the Landmark Theater in Chicago or the Arclight Theater in Chicago, this is like a combination, a composite of those two aesthetics. So it's just nice and quiet and it's very cozy and relaxing, but it's also got this like fun dim club feel to it, okay? It's not oppressive. It's not scary. It's very adult is what it is. There aren't going to be any annoying kids at this movie theater. Don't you just hate it when you go to the movie theater and there's a lot of, a lot of grubby kids running around? Oh, get out of here, you kids. No kids allowed in the movie theater in my mind. I'm feeling a little hungry, and a movie is not a movie without a snack, right? You have to go to the concession stand, okay? They always say, let's go to the lobby, okay? So let's, why don't we play that classic song? Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So here we are in the lobby, and the fun thing about the lobby in this movie theater of our minds is that behind the counter, every single month, will be a different character from the musical theater canon. Well, I say character. They're right here in front of us. They're very much as real as you or I. You've heard them on episodes in the past. These are familiar voices that we're going to be hearing. And today, who do we have behind the counter? Introduce yourself, please. Oh, hey, it's me, Shrek. Hello, welcome to the movie theater. I suppose you'll be wanting some concessions then, eh? <laughs> oh, you're thinking to yourself, get in my belly is what you want to say to all of this food here. Ah, oh, well, we have popcorn, we have Twizzlers, we have soda pop, we have the ice cream. I wouldn't recommend the ice cream, though. It's a little bit of a freezer burn situation. I just like my ass is burning. Okay, that's enough. What do you mean? My ass is burning. You've been washing your hands, yes? Of course I've been washing my hands every few minutes. Well, I run this place like a tight ship, I do like a battleship I do I'm just saying don't go anywhere near the ice cream all right yes fine I will take a popcorn and I will also take another popcorn for our friends here and two soda pops please coca-cola if you please hey all right all right don't fucking eat my ass it's burning you know I've already got a pen down there here's your fucking food now say to the food get in my belly oh, do I have to yes you do Say, get in my belly right now, or else I'm taking the food back. All right, fine. Get in my belly. No, no, no. You have to say it with conviction, with courage, mate. Don't be a fucking baby about it. Say, get in my belly. Fine. Get in my belly. You sounded a lot like me just then. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. All right. Okay, you crazy kids. Take the food. The movie's about to start. The movie's about to start, you fuckwits. Okay, okay, okay. Thank you, Shrek. Oh, to think that we'll only be seeing him once. <laughs> who knows who we'll see next month? Oh, all of our friends in the world of the musical theater canon. Okay, so we're stepping into the first of three movie theaters right now. Okay, so there are three screens in the theater, I should say. 
So we're gonna go from screen to screen to screen, okay? Sometimes you have to take a bathroom break, am I right? There is a beautiful, pristine bathroom. And if you look down at the carpet, there's all kinds of fun stuff on the carpeting, huh? This old school movie theater carpet. We got movie reels, we got buckets of popcorn, we got spotlights, we even got the Hollywood sign. Hello, hello, this place is amazing. The movie theater in my mind. Anyway, it sounded like Aziz just then. I did not mean to do that. Oh, that's ruining the image. Okay, all right, get out of here, Aziz. Oh no, we are now in screen movie theater number one, I should say. All right, so let's settle into our seats here. The movie is about to begin. Before the movie begins, I do want to share some facts regarding our first feature, The Wizard of Oz. It was released on August 25th, 1939. The directors were Victor Fleming and an uncredited George Cooker. Fleming also directed Gone with the Wind, the, the, the best picture, the, the, the best picture winner in 1939. Both films, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, were released in 1939. I did not understand that Victor Fleming directed both of them until uh, just a couple of days ago when I was putting this together. Cooker also directed My Fair Lady, The Philadelphia Story, and A Star is Born. That would be the Judy Garland version from 1954. Cooker was also an uncredited director on Gone with the Wind according to the Internet Movie Database. I did not know that either. I don't know why he was doing so much uncredited director work alongside Victor Fleming. The writers of The Wizard of Oz, Noel Langley, Lawrence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolf. Wolf! And the screenplay is based on the novel by L. Frank Baum, of course. The music is written by Harold Arlen. The lyrics are written by Yip Harburg. And the movie stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Burt Lahr, Jack Haley, Billy Burke, Margaret Hamilton, Charlie Grapewin, Clara Blandick, and Terry the dog as Toto the dog. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so the movie's about to begin. Before the movie starts, we're going to hear some audio from one of the original trailers for all of the movies that we all talk about here today. Uh, so let's get that trailer. Oh, okay. So the trailer's about to start. The lights are coming down. This is really great. We even have that arc light splash of color up on the big screen. Oh, I love that arc. I really do. I love that arc light splash of color. But the trailer's starting. So shush, shush, shush. Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. Although the Wizard of Oz has captivated the children of four generations and fired the imaginations of those youthful adults who have never grown old, although 10 million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of Oz and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland, the flying monkeys, the rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz, and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz himself. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We hear he is. Okay, so we're coming out of the trailer now, and actually, we have now seen the movie. Fantastic. <laughs> we've taken a leap forward in time, and we've all seen The Wizard of Oz. Huh? Right, we just watched it together in movie theater number one of three. <laughs> I just, okay, here's the thing. I don't have any notes 
regarding my thoughts on these movies. This is a real freewheeling. This is a lot like the Radio Boys series. This is really just me kind of going off with, on some basic thoughts and just trying to extend them out as far as I can. We'll, we'll see how far it goes, and then we'll move on to the second and third films. I love The Wizard of Oz from 1939. It is easily in my top ten, if not top five, if not number one movie of all time. I have been obsessed with The Wizard of Oz since I was a kid. I have loved this story in all of its many forms. I love Disney's return to Oz. I loved the Journey Back to Oz animated movie starring Liza Minnelli, which is terrible, but I loved it as a kid. I had anything and everything relating to this property. Rewatching it was just a joyous experience. And what gets me every single time, I realized this recently within the last maybe five years or so, I was watching this at home, in my home in Owensboro, Kentucky, and I was really, at that time, and this experience happened to me again just this past week, what gets to me is how emotionally invested I get in Judy Garland, her performance as Dorothy. In the beginning in the beginning section of this film, the black and white section where she is in Kansas, she is fighting for the life of her dog. This poor dog that is presumably going to be destroyed by this horrifically bitter neighbor of Dorothy's. This woman, Elmira Gulch, I believe, is her name. I know, I'm sure I'm getting that right. I've seen this movie about a thousand times. This woman who owns half of the town and is just determined to destroy, snuff out the life of this dog. And the way that Judy Garland invests her character with this supreme amount of humanity and empathy for her dog, this is the one real friend and companion that she has in her life. And it's so obvious how much love she feels for this animal. And when you see her just fall to pieces in the face of her aunt and uncle's inability to really do anything for her, to really intervene. They are powerless in the face of this horrific person and their terrible power. This person who's wielding their power in the most inane and, 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 and cruel way possible. Those scenes just really get to me. I get, I get so fully invested and on board for what she is doing as an actor. It is really just, it blows my mind every time. And there's a real sense of humanity coursing throughout this whole fantasy film. Like, you would think that The Wizard of Oz is a story that we're all very familiar with, and it's it's easy to sort of go through the beats by rote. You know, we're starting off in Kansas, the tornado, the tornado takes Dorothy to the land of Oz, she meets the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Lion, they go to the wizard, they are tasked with destroying the Wicked Witch of the West, they throw some water on the witch, and everything is basically set to right once the wizard is revealed to be a con man. Dorothy finds out that she can go back to Kansas via her red ruby slippers, and she does so. Going through all of that is easy enough to do, but what I was astonished by watching the film again is that I just, I am really blown away by how well everyone treats each other. Everyone has this fantastic chemistry, and I'm really talking about the main four leads here. We have Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion. You know, in a, in a modern adaptation of this story, I think a great example would be Oz the Great and Powerful, Sam Raimi film, which I of course saw, I believe, opening weekend in a theater. What a terrible, terrible film. It's the fact that that film takes so much time trying to set up these characters as people who would want to spend 
time with each other, but they're constantly, I remember there's a lot of bickering and a lot of sniping between all the characters in that Sam Raimi film, and they think, the writers of these films seem to think that that's what we need in order to achieve some sort of semblance of teamwork and cooperation and a real connection. You can only get connection through conflict, and that's not the case in 1939's The Wizard of Oz. Those four characters come together and immediately click for the sake of, you know, economy, for the sake of keeping the film at a nice pace, of course. But what's insane is that there are no conversations really between these characters after they meet. There's no character building necessarily. But when they look at each other and they smile at each other and they fight for each other and they cry for each other, it just, it fucking pops off the screen. It really fucking works. I'll tell you what else pops in this goddamn movie. And this can be applied to all of the features in this in this month's trilogy. The color just fucking leaps off of the screen and grabs you by the fucking corneas and it will not let go. I mean, of course, there's the famous transition in The Wizard of Oz from black and white to color. But when we first are introduced to Munchkinland, there is this supreme deference that is paid to the enormous set, the Munchkin land set, which is easily one of the most impressive, expansive-looking, colorful sets that have, it's, it's one of the best sets that's ever been built for a Hollywood picture. A picture, I do say. And we have that 360 shot, you know, that really, I don't know if it's a 360 shot necessarily, but it's this very long, indulgent tracking shot of this set. And you really get to take in all of the different components. What's so amazing about a lot of the sets in this movie, I would only not, I would exclude the Wicked Witch of the West Forest. That's more of like what you would think a, a 1930s film would look like. It looks a little bit eliminated. There's some pretty bad looking sort of robotic puppet. I don't know, vulture buzzards and owls in the trees. That doesn't really look great in, in the light of 2020. But if you're talking about Munchkinland, if you're talking about the Emerald City, if you're talking about the Witch's Castle, all of these sets are they, they just have this expansive quality. They seem to go on forever, especially Munchkinland. And of course, that's not true. When you take a close look, not even really a close look, you can see the matte paintings that are, you know, really cordoning off these sets. But the paintings themselves just really do. It, it seems as if these sets could go on and on and on for miles. There's that shot where Dorothy is... Uh, going down the yellow brick road, she's walking away from the munchkins, and they're all waving to her, and it really does seem as if she is going to be going right down that fucking road for the next 16 hours of her life, even though you can see where the wall is. You can see where the wall and the road that she is on meets. It's like something out of a Looney Tune, but you buy it. Like, even as a fully grown adult, the magic of the movie is so effective that you do think to yourself, no, she's going to go right through that fucking wall, and she's going to become a part of it. I loved it. I love the sets. I love the color. I love the chemistry between all of the actors. And I also just love the really soft, gentle comedy that's running throughout all of this movie. Frank Morgan is really the MVP of this film. Not only does he play Professor Marvel in the black and white Kansas section of the film, he also plays, of course, the Wizard of Oz, the gatekeeper who confronts them at the, at the gate of Emerald City. He also plays the carriage driver and the guard. Now, I would actually count a sixth the character because he's also playing the enormous, bald-headed, crazy monster version of the wizard. So I find that that is a distinct character as well. So I'm going to say right now, Frank Morgan should be listed as six characters in this film, not 
five. But Frank Morgan as Professor Marvell has this Marvell Marvel? I forget what it is. Marvell Marvel. I don't know. <laughs> I just watched it this week. Please forgive me. But there's this really one of the best jokes in the movie is this interaction Dorothy and the professor have outside of his wagon. He's cooking up hot dogs. Toto's stealing the hot dog. Honestly, this dog, Terry, Terry is one of the best on-screen dog actors I have ever seen. He is so engaged with everything. He follows everybody around as if he is watching these music numbers and these scenes like we are. He's so attentive. But when he gets rascally, He's always putting his little paw out during the Somewhere Over the Rainbow number. He really wants Dorothy, Judy Carlin, to take his little tiny paw. Oh, what a wonderful little dog. He's the best dog in cinema history, period. So there's this scene where, of course, Toto is eating the hot dogs. And Judy Garland as Dorothy says to Frank Morgan as the professor, Oh, couldn't we go with you, professor? Couldn't we go with you to visit all the crowned kings and queens, the heads of European high society? <laughs> Frank Morgan says, Whoa, do you know any? Oh, uh, you mean the thing. <laughs> And the thing is his wagon, which which is touting his his relationships to all of these crowned kings and queens, these figures of European society. And I love the way Frank Morgan delivers that line. Oh, do you know any? Oh, uh, you mean the uh, um, thing? <laughs> yes. Yes, Professor, the thing, your crazy wagon. And everybody just treats, you know, outside of the Wicked Witch of the West, of course, and those nasty apple-throwing trees, and Elmira Gulch, of course, everybody treats each other with this kindness. The kindness that is running through this is just amazing to me. You know, like, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em in this movie might be, they might be very brusque, with Dorothy, but it's only because they are desperately trying to maintain their farm. They are trying to survive in this sort of dusty Kansas wilderness. But all of the farmhands uh, treat Dorothy with this supreme amount of respect, and they clearly want to protect her and look out for her. Everybody is fighting for each other in a way that is very real and very admirable. I love that. The movie has like this beautiful, warm-blooded, beating heart at the center of it. I mean, what else is there to say about The Wizard of Oz? I mean, the music is just so fucking fantastic. Uh, every single song lands like a goddamn blockbuster somewhere over the rainbow, and of course, all of the variations on uh, If I Only Had a brain, if I only had a heart, if I only had the nerve. God, that lion. <laughs> the cowardly lion with his crazy mutton chop makeup effects. The makeup in this movie is insane. The scarecrow, the Tim, and the lion, they all look so goddamn fantastic, so organic. They, there's this theatrical quality to it. You can see, you know, where the lines kind of begin in it. It's just like the expansive sets I was just talking about. You can see the limitations of the, you know, the makeup technology that we were working with, but it is, it just, it really fucking works. I'll say <laughs> the only thing that doesn't really work, and Chris and I always laugh when we are able to get a shot of this, is the Tin Man's butt. The Tin Man, <laughs> if, you, if you've never noticed this, this is the only thing you're going to notice about the Tin Man moving forward. He has a big-ass silver diaper butt. Everything else is so wonderfully solid, and there's this solid core to him. This we stand a king who is thick. Lord, he coming, and the, the Tin Man is just rock solid, except for his squishy, silvery. It looks like astronaut insulation for a uniform. I don't know. It looks like a fire blanket, is what it looks like. It is just really funny. So good luck not looking at the Tin Man's diaper butt moving forward. I mean, I don't want to move on to the next movie necessarily. I, I, I could sit here all day talking about all the amazing elements here. Margaret Hamilton as the witch. I mean, Jesus Christ, that was a role for the ages. She was born to play that role. She is so goddamn scary. She's so goddamn funny. And no one is ever going to top her 
in terms of a Wicked Witch performance, no one is ever going to top this adaptation, really. I mean, we have tried to imitate this in so many different ways. We've tried to rip this off in so many different ways. Every, outside of like Return to Oz, which is its own sort of beautiful, carefully curated, weird, strange piece. That, that really does stand alone in the canon. Everything else is trying to rip off this Victor Fleming film in so many different ways. That awful CGI Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return film with like Dan Aykroyd and Kelsey Grammer, Leah Michelle, Patrick Stewart, Martin Short, Bernadette Peters as Glinda. She doesn't fucking sing even though the movie's a musical. I'll never get over it. I'm sure I've talked about that on the main feed. But The Legends of Oz steals a lot of ideas from the 1939 film. This idea of everybody that Dorothy knows in the real world is reflected in her time in Oz. Of course, now that I think about it, Return to Oz does that too. It's because this is the template. This really is the template. It's very funny because the trailer that you heard audio from earlier, before all of my rambling and rantings here, uh, that trailer talks about how it's the first time, they try to trumpet this idea that this is the first time that L. Frank Baum's characters have been fully realized on screen, which is not true if you're familiar with the cinematic history of this story. There were several silent film adaptations of a number of the books. This was really just the first one that took off. This was the, you know, this was a sound film. This was a color film in the early days of color technology, and it, it really landed like none of those silent films had, but I just love that the trailer erases that silent film history. Those films don't exist. Fuck you. This is the only one you're ever going to need, and it's true. They really did. They erased history, and I don't really blame them for it. Have you tried watching those silent films? They're not that great. I feel like a number of them are included on the Blu-ray set that I have. Here's the thing. The Wizard of Oz has been made available in so many different formats and so many different editions, but I'm telling you right now, get the 70th anniversary. I believe it's the Emerald Edition Blu-ray. It's two discs. I cannot tell you how much material is on that second disc. It's crazy. It's this enormous mountain of extra material. So many like TV spots, radio spots, Judy Garland's first film appearance when she was like nine years old. There's a John Ritter TV movie about L. Frank Baum, which is unwatchable. I believe the woman who played Blanche in... <laughs> Blanche in the Golden Girls. Why can't I remember her name right now? She's in the movie as Hell Frank Bombs, like wicked, <laughs> wicked stepmother. It's what? Well, no, like mother-in-law. She's like this grouchy mother-in-law. Anyway, get the 70th anniversary Emerald Edition of The Wizard of Oz. If you don't have it in your physical media collection, you really do. You gotta track that down. I cannot recommend it enough. Okay, let's get up. Okay, we're gonna stretch our backs and you go to the bathroom. You good? Okay, you can pause the show. You can pause the show in real time, go to the bathroom, come back. Okay, you back? All right, fine. Let's exit theater one and step into theater two, and we are going to get into our nice cozy seats here. What I love about this movie theater in my mind is that it's carefully air-conditioned. It's not cold, but it's refreshing. It's crisp. It's essentially like you're outside, and you just get this nice breeze going. The air, the air is so well-circulated. And this popcorn and this soda, we didn't even fucking talk about it. It's so great. Okay, so this popcorn comes in that red and white box, you know, that red and white popcorn box with the words, with the word popcorn, pop and corn separated in a red and white circle right there on the box. They have to unfold the box to put the popcorn in the box. And oh, the cola. Can I talk about the Coca-Cola? It's so goddamn refreshing. It's still fizzing. It's not flat. It never goes flat in the movie theater in my mind. The popcorn is so hot. It is so salty. I'm not even anywhere near the middle of the box. So we got a lot of popcorn left to eat. Let's get the trailer. Ooh, it's starting. It's 
get started. Okay, so here's the trailer for our next subject, Singing in the Rain. Hey, there's Don Lockwood! Tell us how it all happened. From the beginning. Well, first we set the stage with a song. Talking pictures. Public is screaming for more. Make a musical. Musical? Sure. Make a musical. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. The show must go on. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? Laugh, laugh. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Where I stand, the sun is shining all over the place. I'm singing in the rain, just singing. Okay, so we're out of the trailer, and we have now seen the movie. <laughs> it's funny how we take these big leaps in time. So Singing in the Rain was released on April 11th, 1952. The directors were Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly. The writers were Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Hello there. Music was by Nacho Herb Brown, and the lyrics were written by Arthur Freed. And the film stars Debbie Reynolds. That's right, I'm putting you right up front. I don't like how Debbie Reynolds gets third billing every single time this movie comes up. Debbie Reynolds first, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Gene Hagen, and Millard Mitchell. Okay, so Singing in the Rain. This is, again, one of my favorite movies of all time, and it really does boil down to the scale of the film. We're going to talk about that consistently throughout all three of these films. Umbrellas of Chabra has a different sense of scale. They play with that in a very different way. These first two films are just enormous. The sets in Singing in the Rain and the numbers really do every single time. I am just, it's its flabbergasting is what it is. This movie is so goddamn, it is so charming and it is so funny and there is this really nice ease to it. A lot of these Gene Kelly musicals, like I'm not a big fan of An American in Paris, I'll just say that now, and we'll probably never cover it here. We are going to cover at least one more Gene Kelly picture during our M3 run. I'm not going to spoil that for you now, but it is going to be in this first batch of episodes. Uh, so you'll just have to wait. You'll just have to be patient. But, you know, An American in Paris features Gene Kelly in this mode where you see this in a lot of old movie musicals, old movies in general, and today, of course. This idea of, like, the pushy guy. This pushy guy who doesn't hear no. This, uh, this character type that doesn't hear no, and that's supposed to be part of his charm, that he's persistent. He's romantic. He wants to win over the girl, the woman in the movie. And that's not really the relationship between Debbie Reynolds and Gene Kelly. They have this very fun, equally contentious uh, sort of bark and bite banter at the top of their relationship, at the top of their arc. They slide into their proper relationship together. Now, of course, is Debbie Reynolds more interesting as a person and a character when you think that she's not a fan of Gene Kelly's character in the film when you think to yourself, oh, she doesn't watch his movies. She's not impressed by him. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Yes, it does become less interesting when it's revealed that she actually is a huge fan of his. She's seen eight or nine of his movies and reads all about him 
him in all sorts of fan magazines, but there is still this very comforting, comfortable quality between the two of them. There isn't this pushiness. They really do find a common ground. They apologize to each other for sort of barking and biting at each other in earlier scenes, and they settle into this really nice ease. And getting into another theme from The Wizard of Oz, the relationship that they have with Donald O'Connor's character, that friendship seems really rock solid as well. The fact that the idea that these three characters are looking out for each other in this big studio system, it's its really cool. They, they really do seem to be on each other's side. They're not in it for themselves. You know, this isn't some like cynical, you know, backstage Hollywood tale where everyone's out, out for themselves what they can get out of that wicked Hollywood studio system. I like how in this story, we have these people operating within this big metatextual movie industry. Actually, the only character that really is a wicked witch is Lena Lamont. Uh, Lena Lamont is this... <laughs> <laughs> She's very funny, and I actually feel sorry for her for a, for a great portion of the film until she reveals how in it for herself she truly is. I feel sorry for this character because a lot of people will talk about how Lena's voice is crummy. Uh, it, it is not a voice made for the talky circuit. This Okay, so maybe I should just back up for a second. I'm so familiar with The Wizard of Oz that I'm sort of taking the story for Singing in the Rain for granted. So let me just unpack this a little bit, then we'll get back to Lena. So Singing in the Rain is all about the Hollywood transfer, this huge transition in the industry from silent films, we talked about silent films a second ago, to talkies. And the characters in this film, Singing in the Rain, are all actors at a big studio, and they, they are used to operating within this uh, silent film mindset. They've never really had to properly act in front of a camera. There is no template for what it means to behave and act in front of the camera. So they're running into a lot of issues when they try to film their first talkie and it's a musical on top of everything else. They decide to eventually turn it into a musical. They're running into all of these issues. Gene Kelly's character, Don Lockwood, is so used to emoting in this very big theatrical way for the purposes of a silent film. And now he's having to take elocution lessons. He's having to really readjust himself and recontextualize what it means to be a star of the cinema. If he can't figure this out, it's going to be a disaster and he's going to lose all credibility within the industry. And his co-star throughout all of his career has been this woman, Lena Lamont. And the thing about Lena is that she does talk like a mouse who's been sucking on helium from a blimp. And she is a really unprofessional, just very rude person. She's very into herself. She's also maybe out of her mind because she believes all of this gossip, this tabloid gossip regarding her and Don. The tabloids would like everybody to believe that they are essentially engaged to be married. And no matter how many times... Gene Kelly as Don tells Lena Lockwood, we are not together. I don't like you. I don't love you. I would never marry you in a million years. Ah, if you were drowning, I would only save you as a matter of course. No matter how often he says that, she does not hear him. She thinks that they really are married and that he really does love her. And she's very jealous of Debbie Reynolds' character. Okay, so Debbie Reynolds plays a character named Kathy Selden, who is new, really, really very new to the scene. And they, she gets pulled into this scheme to essentially dub Lena Lamont's voice in this brand new talkie film. Because Lena's voice is terrible, it'll never work in a million years, it's this period piece during, the, I, I believe, the French aristocracy. The movie itself would make no sense if you actually watched it. <laughs> 
I think the movie that they are filming, when all is said and done, when it's turned into a musical, I think the movie they're making is about an actor who gets conked on the head by a sandbag while filming a movie. It's so, the onion layers in this is just crazy. It's about a guy who gets conked on the head by a sandbag and wakes up in the era of the the old school French aristocracy. This movie wouldn't make any fun. I don't understand how it could possibly be a hit, but everybody acts like it's such a delightful entertainment. So I, I guess I'm just going to have to go with the sentiment of the characters as expressed on screen. And uh, Kathy Selden is brought in to dub the vocals, the singing vocals, and the dialogue for Lena. And she, she gets roped into this with the idea being that she'll only get to do this one time. She'll only have to do it one time. And then the head of the studio, R.F. Simpson, is going to give her a lot of work after that. He's going to build this huge campaign around her and turn her into a proper star. But that is when Lena Lamont really reveals her cards. Oh, no, 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 no. She's not going to let Kathy become a star. Not if it means her star will fade in the process. So in the end, of course, they they manage to stop the schemes of Lena. They reveal that Kathy is the true star of of this film, not Lena, and everybody is uh, happy. Everything is set to right. I kind of feel bad for Lena to a certain extent because for the majority of the film, at least, she is not actively going against anyone's better interests. She's not trying to destroy anybody. And she does seem very confused, as many people would be trying to transition into this talky mindset. She's very confused as to how sound equipment works. She thinks that her voice sounds fine because she's never been told otherwise. And her behavior has never really been questioned or checked by anyone except for Don. And so why would she believe anyone, why would she believe anyone who dissents and goes against what the entire world has been telling her, that she's this wonderful beauty, that she's this genius of the screen, that she should never be questioned. So I, I, I get where she's coming from. She's this very privileged, very cocooned, very bubble-like person. She's been living in this bubble. I feel bad for Lena. But when she goes full-on wicked, that's when I turn against her. When she turns into a wicked witch of the West, that's when I gotta say bye-bye, Lena. Okay, enough about the plot. I just want to talk about, oh my god, the color, the, the huge scale of these sets. One of the best sequences in the entire movie is within the Gotta Dance sequence. I mean, this movie is about, I think it's about as long as The Wizard of Oz, actually, about an hour and 40, I think. And one of the huge sequences takes place within the last chunk of the film. It's like this 20-minute, 15 to 20-minute sequence known as Gotta Dance. And there is a sequence within that where, oh my god, Don Lockwood, uh, Gene Kelly, I should say, dances with this, this brunette, this vamp. And she has this gossamer gauzy train that billows out behind her body for what seems like an eternity. The, the wind effect that is making this train billow and rise up into the sky, the fucking heavens, it goes on forever and ever for days and days. And they are dancing inside a painting. It is one of the best sets ever. Right, right up there with the Munchkinland set from The Wizard of Oz, really, truly. The, these beautiful pastels, these really lush, rosy pinks, and these light blues and these purples. It's as if they've stepped into the sky. They've stepped into this, this watercolor work of art. And what's so wonderful is it is sort of designed in such a way that you can't tell what is a flat surface and what is actually a raised step. So as they move through this football field arena-sized set, you never know what is actually at an angle or what is actually a flat surface. It's skewing 
thing. Your perspective is what it is. It's this magic eye 3D painting effect. And I will never get over the choreography, the Gene Kelly choreography that he designed for that sequence when he's dancing with this brunette. The way that the train wraps around them both, the way that they unfurl it, it it's like a toy that they're playing with. They found that they could do this and they, they manipulated it and they played it out for as much as they possibly could. There is no stone left unturned in that sequence. I mean, of course, I could talk about the Singing in the Rain sequence where Gene Kelly is splashing around in enormous, <laughs> in enormous puddles, but we've all seen that. We're all familiar with that. Even if you've never seen the movie proper from beginning to end, I'm sure you have a visual reference for what that is. I guess the other sequence that I'd like to talk about before we move on to our third film is the Make Him Laugh sequence. I love Donald O'Connor in that sequence. He's completely out of his mind. Now, if I were to try and do anything, even a single step from the... I had this thought regarding the entire movie. If you told me that I had to do, for example, the choreography, the fit as a fiddle choreography that is... That is demonstrated by Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor in the opening section of this movie. I would I would absolutely just fall down into a puddle of tears because the dancing is just it's so innately like the physicality on display, the athleticism on display, the idea that anyone could see dance as like this, you know, in a negative way, a lot of people would categorize like, oh, dance. That's so, oh, that's that's gay. That You know, children think this way, but adults do too. You know that they still do. Oh, dancing, it's so gay. It's so feminine. Feminine is bad. Ugh, femininity, it's so inherently atrocious. Ugh. But if you fucking watch these guys, if you watch any professional dancer at all, you understand how much athleticism, how much raw physical ability and talent and precision goes into this. And it's not just this, it's not just this silly, I don't know why people think of dance as like tutu frou-frou bullshit. I mean, that fit as a fiddle sequence is fantastic, but getting back to Make Him Laugh, if you told me to do anything from the Make Him Laugh sequence, I would have bruises on every inch of my body. And I'm convinced that Donald O'Connor is so on point is so precise in what he is doing in that sequence that he didn't have a fucking mark on him at the end of the day. And it's not even an especially naturally funny sequence. I don't laugh, <laughs> even though it's called Make Him Laugh. I myself am not like, you know, busting the gut. I'm just in awe of what he is capable of doing. I mean, the only thing that would be more impressive is if it was done in one shot. Here's the thing. Singing in the Rain was not a stage show before the film. The film was then adapted many years later in the mid 80s, I believe the 1985 season, into a stage show that I don't think ran very long. I know it gets produced every now and then, but it's not an especially popular stage show. But I would like to see somebody try to achieve the Make Him Laugh sequence in one fell swoop on stage right in front of my fucking eyes. You know, no cuts. If you can do half of what Donald O'Connor does here, you deserve whatever local regional theater award is. <laughs> It's available to you. That's what I say. I just, I love Debbie Reynolds. I God, she is so fucking cute. She is cute as a goddamn button. This movie is just so much fun. I could put it on. It moves, man. It really fucking moves. The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, these movies are both an hour and 40 minutes. They are done like that. They just, it's just amazing to me. I love... I love everything about these first two films. And I love I love this third film, too. I hadn't seen this in a while. So let's get up. All right, let's get up. You need to go to the bathroom? Okay, go to the bathroom. Okay, we're back. <laughs> and now we are stepping into theater number three for The Umbrellas of Shabur. Let's get the trailer. Oh, the trailer. 
<laughs> Every time I say, let's get there, the trailer immediately starts. It's very spooky. I don't know actually who's up there. Shrek, are you out there in the booth? Hi, it's me, Shrek. I'm up here in the booth. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, the trailer, it was paused by Shrek so we could have that conversation. But let's get the con let's get the trailer, I should say, for the Umbrellas of Sherber. <laughs> Watch that film now as well. That's about a 90-minute film right on the dot, so we're fresh out of that. Let's talk about it. It was released on December 16th, 1964. It was directed by Jacques Demy. The writer was Jacques Demy. The music was written by Michel Legrand, and the lyrics were written by Jacques Demy, of course, because he was the writer. It's a sung-through movie musical, I should say. Sung-through movie musical. There are no really delineated numbers, and we'll get into it. The movie stars Catherine Denuvier, Nino Castellanovo. Ugh, I'm getting these wrong. I'm mangling these names, I know. Anne Vernon, Mark Michel, Ellen Farmer, Ellen Farmer, I should say, and Mirelle Perry, okay? Fantastic. I'm getting, I'm so excited. I, I, I'm so worked out. This is much more worked out than I ever have been, I feel like, in any of our series. And it's because this has just been so long in the running, so long in the making. I've been wanting to do this for a really long time, and I'm really glad that you're listening to this. I hope you're having fun listening to me rant and rave about these movies. But this final film, I mean, I, I think a couple of people on the Patreon uh, page, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, were talking about how they had not seen this particular movie. Of course, they were familiar with The Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, but The Umbrellas of Schaberg was a new experience for them, so I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed revisiting it. And again, talk about a movie that just moves. And the big difference between the first two films and this third film is that Umbrellas is just so deliciously melancholy. It's so lovelorn. It's so forlorn. I mean, in Singing in the Rain, when you see that rain coming down on Gene Kelly, it is, it's supposed to come off as this very joyous, almost redemptive washing away of tension and despair and sadness. And Gene Kelly is just sort of cleansed in that sequence by the beauty of the rain, the, the purity of that rain in that sequence. But in The Umbrellas of Shabur, rain is just, oh my God, it's soaking through every inch of this movie. You cannot escape it. And it is just the saddest element in the natural world. Hello. You're hearing those opening strains over the credits. You're seeing, you're getting that aerial shot of everybody walking past the camera in their, uh, with their umbrellas, I should say. And that rain is just, it looks 
It looks gray. It looks silvery. And it just, it, you, you feel that if you even have a drop of it land on you, you would turn into a goddamn icicle. The, the final sequence of this movie, we'll get to this in a second. I, I should talk about what this movie is about. The Umbrellas of Chabert is all about Genevieve. I, I believe it's Genevieve, Genevieve. Let's go with Genevieve and Guy. So this young couple, now this doesn't read well in 2020, I should say. Genevieve is 16 years old and Guy is 20. This is set in the early to late 1950s in France. So of course we could hide behind the it was a different time, but even in the movie, in the setting, the proper context of this setting, Genevieve's mother routinely tells her, you know, you are too young to be getting married. I don't think you know this man well enough. I have not met this man, but Genevieve, oh, she's so in love. It is just that youthful confidence in the ideas of love. But she and Guy are determined to get married. The problem arises when Guy is called up for the French draft and he has to go fight in this war in Algeria, I believe, and he's gone for two years. And what's so crazy about their relationship is that it falls apart. It's sort of predicated on the, on the idea that the reason the relationship falls apart during these two years is that Guy doesn't write enough letters to Genevieve, but Genevieve, oh God, I, I hate that I watched the movie just last night and I'm getting her name wrong, oh well. So she's always sort of putting the back of her hand to her forehead and saying, oh, Guy doesn't write me enough letters. But he's at war, you know what I mean? And Genevieve's mom is even on, she's on her side. She's like, yeah, he should be writing you more letters. I don't think you should be with him. You should break up with him. And instead, you should be uh, maybe getting engaged to this other man, Roland Cassard. He's very rich. He has lots of jewels and gems, and he travels all the time. And here's the problem with that, though. I know that the mom has this little romantic scheme cooking up for her daughter to marry this older, richer guy. He works at a a fucking auto repair shop. Guy doesn't have any money. How is he going to take care of my daughter? Seems to be the mother's uh, perspective. But here's the thing. Oh my God, on the night before Guy left to go fight in the war, he had sex with Genevieve and now she's pregnant. Oh, but, but Roland Cassard is such an understanding guy. It's sort of insane how... <laughs> how steadfast he is in regards to this woman he barely he barely knows they have not interacted all that much but he says to her I will raise this child with you we can raise this child as our own I am not I'm not thrown by this. So I love you. We have never really had a conversation outside of the one we are in right now. But if you want me to help you raise your child, we'll get married. I love you. I will take care of you. You will never want for anything. And she says, okay. She says, okay. And she does not tell Guy. And when Guy comes back, <laughs> okay. So Genevieve and her mother have been working in this this umbrella shop. It's a shop that only sells umbrellas. You would think that that's a little limiting. And you could, I think that's very obvious in the fact that they're like 80,000 francs in debt at the top of the movie. <laughs> the shop is not doing well. Maybe it's because you just sell umbrellas. But when Guy comes back from his two years in the service after having grenades thrown at him, after seeing some of his some of his closest peers die right in front of him. He gets back to France and he has no idea where Genevieve and her mother have gone because the, the umbrella shop is being turned into a fucking laundromat. And they are, they are nowhere to be found. This all takes place in the small city, the French city of Cherbourg. I say small, I don't know if it's big or small or medium, I don't know. But they have moved to France and he cannot fucking find them. His child has just been completely taken out of the equation. The child is not 
on the table for him. But the thing is, he does wind up falling for a young woman who has been taking care of his aunt while he's away. His Aunt Elise is this very ill older woman, and this woman Madeline has been taking care of her. And he realizes that they are they are connected. They have this very strong connection in the aunt, and they wind up together. But it's very realistic. I, I really like the Madeline character in this movie because she's much more. She doesn't have the sort of youthful naivete that Genevieve has right at the beginning. I should say they're not trying to draw this this line between these two characters saying that she's practical, that's the good thing to be, and Genevieve is youthful and naive, that's silly. They're saying that these are two equally valid perspectives. These are just two people who are coming at the events in their lives in the way that they know how, and I, I appreciate that. They're not saying that like Genevieve is like a flighty idiot. I, I can see why she goes in the direction she does. I don't agree with the choices necessarily that she makes, but I, she's not supposed to be a bad person or be seen as such or be seen as a villain, and I don't. But th there's this very realistic conversation, a series of conversations that Madeline has with Guy. She says, you know, it's really crazy that you were supposed to marry Genevieve, and she is clearly, uh, she had your child, and I was at that was outside of the church when she married this Roland Cassard guy, and I, I heard that they moved to Paris. But why are you why are you asking me to marry you? Why do you want to be with me? I'm just concerned that you're worried that you know after your aunt died, the aunt dies at a certain point in the narrative. I'm just worried that the only reason you want to be with me is because I'm the only person you know essentially. And I can't be with someone who is leaning on me like a crutch. Because here's the thing. When Guy comes back from France, he turns into a drunk. He starts sleeping with sex workers. He gets a bit of a five o'clock shadow. He's a real mess. But he assures her that that is not what is going on, even though it's very obviously what's going on. He's very sad. And I think he's grasping for some sort of legitimacy, a, a good, solid, uh, very settled life. He wants a settled life with a woman he can respect and love. That may be where it begins, that may be where it begins for them, this sort of unsteady, this this very risk, it's a risk they're taking, because they could very easily hurt each other. He could very easily hurt Madeline. That's, that's the more obvious conclusion to make. But when we see them in the final moments of the movie, they are so very obviously completely in love. They really were. They were meant to be together. They pair very well together, and they have a child of their own now. And it's it, the final sequence is amazing. The final sequence is easily the best part of the entire movie, okay? So I'm going to talk about this, and then I'm going to talk about the sets, and then I think we're just going to call it a day for this episode. So this sequence at the end, it's this snowy Christmas sequence at a gas station that Guy has opened. He talks about wanting to open this white gas station with an office. He talks about how he wants that at the very beginning of the film when he and Genevieve are sharing these youthful dreams together. We're going to get married. We're going to have this gas station. We're going to have kids. It's going to be great. So he does manage to, with the money that he gets from the passing of his Aunt Elise, he's able to open up this gas station, and the movie ends on Christmas Eve, I believe. It feels like Christmas Eve, at least, and just by complete circumstance, chance, coincidence, uh, Genevieve drives up with her daughter in the car. She happens to be visiting the city, and they have this very... Ama this this interaction is amazing. And, it, and in a film that would have been overwritten, they would have had like an argument or a very passionate discussion or they would have kissed one last time. Instead, it's very realistic in the sense that it's very stiff. They do not know what to say to each other. And what is unspoken is this idea of that she owes him some sort of explanation as to why she made the choices that she made. And you can see it in her eyes that she is just 
blown away that this is happening to her. She thought that this was never going to happen. Even though you, you take that risk by going back to Cherbar, Genevieve, that's the risk that you take. But she never, she doesn't, ha she doesn't have this big confessional Oscar winning speech. You know what I mean? They just, instead, they, they talk to each other in this very stiff, very polite way. They're not sneering at each other. They're not snipping at each other. And then they part ways. She even says to him, do you want to see your child who is sitting in the car while we stand here in your office talking? And he says to her, no, because he understands and he accepts the choices that she made and he doesn't want to muddy those waters. He doesn't want to blur those lines. Uh, th that child is not a part of his life anymore. It's not really his child because he is not the one raising her, obviously. And as they part ways, Genevieve gets back into her car. She takes her daughter away. They drive away just as Madeline and Guy's son come back from, they, they've gone away for a moment to look at all of the toys in the department store windows. And he embraces them in a way that is just, it's so effervescent. He's so clearly filled with this joy of seeing them again, even though they've only been away for a few minutes. In that moment, he starts a snowball fight with his toddler son, and he, he hugs Madeline. He realizes, like, this is the life that I was meant to find myself in. And it was a weird road. I, I was filled with sorrow, but now I'm where I need to be. And they, they pan out, and it's pitch black outside, and it's so cold. The weather in this movie just really gets to me. It's very visceral. The rain when it's drenched on a sad five o'clock shadow ghee. Oh, it's just the, the rain makes him look so greasy. It's so clearly soaking through every piece of fabric on his skin. But the snow, it feels so fucking cold outside of that gas station. You can feel how fucking cold it is outside. But at the same time, it's so it must be so bracing and exciting. It must get the blood pumping to be outside with the with the person that you love, with the child that you love who's in your life. And, oh my God, it's just, it's amazing. The Umbrellas of Chivalry is so good. It's not nearly as good as Singing in the Rain and The Wizard of Oz, I will say. It's a soft third place for me, but it's a really great film. I'll talk about the sets real quick and then we'll wrap up this month's episode. I just, I love the interiors. I love the umbrella shop. I love how the umbrella shop is folded into the home of Genevieve and her mother. And the thing about what I love about all these interiors, this includes Guy's, oh, Guy's apartment where he lives with Annalise. This counts too. These are so obviously sets. And there is this, there isn't any attempt to mask that or disguise that in any way. These are very theatrical, borderline abstract sets where it seems like we have just carved out these squares, these very these very confining little boxes. They don't feel like rooms. It feels like everybody is in a diorama. The Umbrella Shop really does. It has this surreality quality to it where it doesn't really feel like a real shop. And what's great about the Umbrella Shop and the house as a combo is every single fucking wall has essentially a different wallpaper, but all of it is bright. Again, we're going back to that color idea. The color just, it's, it, it sears into the eye. It's like these bright neon on pinks, these like bright fruits. There's like a fucking fruit wallpaper, like these bright oranges on vines, these these tree branches or something, something along those lines. It's just amazing. When they're walking through all of these sets, it just feels like they are these little dolls that are moving from point to point, from space to space, as if this is, I don't know, like this was always meant to be in a certain way. And I, what I really like about Guy's bedroom in the apartment that he shares with Aunt Elise is that there are all of these toys. His room is very obviously the room that he's always lived in. He was raised by his aunt as a child, but there are all these toys in the room like there's like this little uh 
Actually, now that I think about it, it might be a little gas station toy playset that's on the floor, and there's like a little toy boat, and his bed even seems very, very small for an adult grown man. And the apartment that he shares with Annalise is bright blue. And once again, it just feels like I just love that quality. It's very hard to describe, but if you see this film, I think you're going to understand what I'm talking about. And I love the fact that it's sung through, of course. There are no very obvious music numbers in this. That's the huge difference between the sensibility of this film and the first two that we talked about. Uh, But it's so whimsical and airy, and everybody just is very casual about the delivery, that after about 13 seconds, you just completely fall in with this style of the film. And it's just great. I love it. It's just, everybody's being so melodramatic and they're being so swoony and moony and goo-goo-eyed at each other. But it never comes off as false. It never comes off as broad or theatrical. They manage to achieve this sort of soapy effect while seeming very grounded. You gotta watch it. If you're not familiar with it, I can't recommend it enough. That is it. The movie the, the movie discussion is over for this month. Let us now get up. Let us bid adieu to Shrek. We've stepped out of the theater and we're walking by the lobby. Goodbye, Shrek. Goodbye, Shrek. Oh, goodbye. All right, goodbye. And remember, all that food in your belly has got to come out sometime. You're going to be feeling a burn in your ass is what I mean to say. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right, so we're in the elevator. We're going down the elevator. We're stepping out of the elevator. We're going through the revolving door and we're standing outside of the movie theater in our mind. We're back where we began. And we're going to be back here next month talking about another trilogy of films. What is the name of that trilogy? The name of the trilogy is the Go Off Trilogy, and that's because all the movies we'll be talking about are adaptations of off-Broadway musicals. We're going to be starting with Hedwig and the Angry Inch from 2001, then we're going to jump to 2014 for the last five years, and then we're going to jump to 2017 for Stuck, which is a movie and a musical that I am not at all familiar with. So that is your homework for next month if you want to watch the films before we talk about them here, please do so. I think that enhances the experience. I know I do that with a lot of movie podcasts that I listen to. So Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Last Five Years, Stuck. That's our go-off trilogy, the go-off trilogy. Thank you so much for listening to this again. I just, this was great. I think this went really, really well. It's probably because this damn thing's been in my mind for so long, and now it actually gets to come out and be real, and that's that's because of you. So thank you again. Oh my gosh, I, I have my hands up to my cheeks. What a delightful experience this has been, and I hope it continues to be that way. So here's the thing. We're going to be releasing these in four, in, in batches of four. So you're going to get four episodes, one a month, and then we're going to move on to another. I think we're going to be moving on to actually All I Ask of You Season 2, which is going to be, we're going to go back to the $5 a month tier for that. I want to make something exclusive for that tier. And then once we do 12 weeks of that, we're going to get another four episodes of this, M3, the movie musical, man. Uh, That's just how we're going to be doing it for a while. The Patreon's going to be bouncing back and forth between these batches of M3 episodes and uh, other material that's exclusive for other tiers. I think it's important to try and uh, give some exclusive content to everybody in the different corners, the different areas of this wonderful family of ours. But that's enough out of me. That's enough out of uh, this episode. So I'll see you next month in July the last Wednesday of July for the Go Off Trilogy. Goodbye. Thank you. And I'll see you again at the movies. Is that what I'm going to say at the end of these? Probably. Let's go to the movies. See the movies. Let's go see the stars.